Hello, I'm Jesse Walls from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church. We're a church seeking to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus. Thank you to Life FM for continuing to host us. Today, as we look to God's Word, our reading is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23, so you can begin looking that up now. This sermon was recorded live at Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church. After reading the passage, we'll hear the children's talk, so if you have children, make sure they're listening, and then we'll go to the sermon. So now, let's hear the reading of God's Word. The reading is from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace on by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." All right. Hello, everyone. I've got a few things up here with me. Now, can you remember what we've been thinking about in our kids' talks and even in our sermons for the last few weeks? Hannah. That's right. We have a message to share. Can you remember anything about that message? Actually, first, I'm going to draw what our message is so far. All right, let's see if you can guess what it is that these things mean or if you can remember what they mean. That, and I'll draw that. Now, you're about to see some amazing, amazing artistic ability. There you go. What do you think? Does that look amazing? What do you think this might be? Yes? A crown. That's exactly right. And what is this? A circle. It is a circle. What do you think the circle might be? Earth. That's exactly right. So, what do you think that crown represents? Ellie? It does represent God. So, here's God and here's the earth. What's the first thing we learned about the message that we have to share? Can you remember? What's the first thing that we learned the very first week? Yeah, Kai? Yeah, that's right. God created the world and everything belongs to him. He made the world and so he ruled the world. Now, I'm going to add to that picture. What do you think that is? 
What is that standing on the world? Adam and Eve, they're people, aren't they? Really, really well-drawn people. Remember, God made the world and he owns the world, but people, and God made people in his image. He made us precious. Do you remember that? God made us precious. He loves us because he made us in his image. Now, does that look like a great picture? Not artistically, but does that sound really good? God made the world, he made us special. Does that sound really good? Yeah? Well, let's see what happens. This is very big and flick. It's a bit hard when you're walking around. Let's see what happened. Second that off. I'm going to do that. Draw that. Turn that around. Can you remember what this means? Or can you guess what that means? Yeah? What do you think? That's right. People disobey God. Do you see how they've crossed out God? Okay, they've rebelled against God. They've rejected him. Sit down, Flick. And they've put a crown on their own heads. Okay, they've decided that they want to decide for themselves what to do. And that's what we all do, isn't it? We all decide to say, no, I'm not going to listen to God or I'm not going to listen to my mum. I'm not going to listen to my dad. I'm going to do what I want to do. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Oh, I'll bet you have. What do you think God did? Let's have a look. What has he done? Over here. Can you see what he's done? Okay. That's right. There are consequences for sin. Okay. And we were learning last week all about those consequences, that bad things happen because of our sin. And the worst thing that happens is death and judgment. Okay. God is still king. We rejected him, but God is still king whether we want him to be or not. And so the question is, how can we get out of this? How can we get out of being punished? Is there anything that we can do? Let's think about that for a minute. Now, I have a thing of water here. Okay? A thing of water. Is there anything that this blue tub can do to get rid of the water. Can it do anything? No. It just sits there. It's full of water and there's nothing that that blue tub can do. Let's imagine that that water is our sin and this is us. Let's imagine that Jesus is this. Jesus is this sponge. What does Jesus do? He comes into the muck of our life, just like this sponge has gone into the blue tub. And when we believe in him, he soaks up all of our sin. He soaks it all up so that it's in him and God punishes him for it. Okay? It's as if on the cross, Jesus was squeezed out like a sponge. Okay? There are consequences for our sin. We learned that over there. There are consequences for our sin. And Jesus took those consequences. Jesus was punished for us on the cross. Okay? And the thing is, Jesus was better than a sponge. He was certainly better than this sponge. 
Because there's a whole lot of water still in here, isn't there? You can hear it in there. But Jesus still acts like this sponge, where he takes our sin, he soaks up our sin, and he is punished on the cross. Okay? That's the next part of our message. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered for us. Can you remember that? Jesus suffered for us. God made us. God made the world and he made us. Made us precious. We rejected God. There are consequences for rejecting God. God judges us. But in his great love, God punished Jesus for us. And that's what happened at the cross. And we're going to keep learning all about our message in the next couple of weeks. But that's really important. That's a really important part of it, guys. God punished Jesus for our sin. Okay? So let's pray and thank God for Jesus. Hold our hands together. Close our eyes so that we're not distracting anyone else. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus was punished for our sins. We thank you that he took the punishment so that we could go free. Please help us to believe this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray as we continue to think about what God has done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you have given us your word, that we would know you. We pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, that we would receive this word that you have given, that, they would, that we would know these words are true. And God, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Seemingly impossible and unstoppable conflicts rage in our world. Where does your mind turn to when you hear something like that? One of the world-shaking conflicts, maybe. Have you been gripped all this time by the war between Russia and Ukraine? A friend of mine, he gets updates every day, trying to piece together the truth from the propaganda which is uh, spoken by both sides. Maybe it's the Israel and Hamas war. I was talking the other day with someone about this and wondering how it would be possible for this conflict to end. Not, and not just this conflict, but the constant conflict that Israel has with its neighbours. And it all seems hopeless. And it's especially worrying when you see the protests and the media reports accusing Israel of attempted genocide. I don't normally give my opinion on these issues in sermons. I'll put them out there, but I won't uh, give my opinions. But I feel like I have to speak to this one, because the suggestion that Israel is just as much in the wrong as Hamas is plainly wrong. Hamas deliberately targeted civilians at a music festival and in their homes. Israel is not targeting civilians but are instead urging the civilians to leave because the terrorists that they're targeting are living underneath them in the tunnels that they have built. Now, I don't believe that the modern state of Israel has theological significance. 
I don't believe that their establishment in 1948 was fulfilment of prophecy, as some do. But if the world will ever know peace in that region, the world can't defend terrorists as they hide among civilians and as they kill civilians, leaving that conflict. Maybe you thought of conflict closer to home, to that feud between your son and daughter or your wife and a cousin. Christmas is coming up. What relationships need to be managed? Who won't be there because the other person will be there? And these conflicts can be either hot or cold, full of fighting and yelling, or silence and avoidance. There's this understanding that if that person is invited, I won't be there. These conflicts fill our our minds with confusion, our hearts with dread. We long for resolution, for peace, even while we dread that that resolution will never come. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest conflict has found resolution. Finally, there can be peace. Over the last month, we have seen that we have a message to share. It's a story of of God's relationship with the people he made. And it all started off so well, and then it became hostile. We saw first, God is the loving maker and ruler of the world. And second, he made humanity in his image. It all sounds so wonderful, so good, but then third, we all rebelled against God's loving rule. And so fourthly, God judges justly our rebellion. We are at war with God because of our sin and we we can't escape this judgment ourselves. We've all done wrong. We all deserve judgment and there's nothing we can do to get out of that. If anything is going to happen, it has to be God who does something. God needs to do something if there's going to be any hope for us. And he has. In this next part of our message, central to the entire gospel message, central to Christianity itself, we see Jesus and we discover Jesus' death reconciles us to God. That's the fifth part of our message. Jesus' death reconciles us to God. But before we can understand how it's possible that Jesus' death reconciles us to God, we we need to understand who Jesus is. And so in our first heading, we see that Jesus is the God-man. In the earlier days of the church, the first couple of centuries, people needed to be convinced that Jesus was truly a man. There were strange religious groups around claiming to be a version of Christianity. They weren't, but they were claiming to be, which said that Jesus wasn't really a man. He was just pretending to be. He appeared to be a man, but it was all an illusion. See, they couldn't imagine the God who is spirit tainting himself to become a man because they believed that the physical world was evil. The spiritual world was good, the, the physical world was evil. That's what they believed. But as you, uh, as you read through the New Testament, that thought doesn't hold water. See, Jesus didn't pretend to get thirsty. 
He was thirsty. He did get tired. He did eat. And he really did suffer and die. He was a man and he still is a man. Though we'll think more about that next week. Jesus is a man. If he wasn't a man, he couldn't be our saviour. He needed to be the God-man. And Paul is absolutely clear here in Colossians 1, Jesus is God. Let's quickly go phrase by phrase through verses 15 to 16. He, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Now that should ring a bell. It sounds like Genesis 1. God created man in his image, and he is Jesus, and he is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect image. When we look at Jesus and when we hear his words, we see what he does, we are seeing, we are hearing God. He perfectly represents God because he is God. He is the word, he is God made flesh, as John says in his gospel. Paul continues, he is the firstborn over all creation. Not that he's the first creation. It wasn't that he was made and then everything else was made. Every year, Ligonier Ministries, which was founded by R.C. Sprawl in America, it conducts a survey called the State of Theology to see what Americans believe about various Christian doctrines. It asks the participants to either agree or disagree with some statements. Is the statement true or false? Now, how would you answer, just think, how would you answer if asked to say true or false to this statement? Quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Unquote. How would you answer that question? In 2022... Of those who seem to be evangelicals, people like us, 73% thought it was true. That Jesus is a created being. The greatest created being, but still a created being. But that is not what the Bible says. That idea has been identified as a heresy since at least the 4th century. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. This is what Mormons believe. But not Bible-believing Christians. Sometimes, yes, in the Bible, it, the, that word firstborn means literally the one who was born first in the family. Yes, that's, that's true. But because in that culture, the firstborn would become the head of the family, the ultimate heir, Firstborn also became symbolic of someone who has authority. God says of David in Psalm 89, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. Now, David wasn't even literally the firstborn in his family, if you remember. Brother after brother after brother went past Samuel before finally got round to David to say, Ah, here he is, the youngest son. He's the king. And here's God saying he'll be the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, not because he was the first created, but because he is the ruler over everything. And we're told why that is 
in the next verse. For by him all things were created. He is the creator. Like we saw in our first week of this series, God is the loving maker and ruler of the world. He's ruler because he is maker. And now here's Paul saying that Jesus is the maker. And then, even more, verse 17, he, uh, in him, all things hold together. He made it and he sustains it. He upholds it. If he was to let his mind slip for even a moment, every atom in creation would disintegrate. There'll be no gravity, no planetary orbits, no controlled nuclear explosions in the sun generating heat and light. When we understand that this is who Jesus is, it makes Christmas so much more spectacular. It's coming soon and we'll be singing carols of, of shepherds and wise men and angels and, and we'll even sing God from God, light from light and proclaim glory to God in the highest. But as we sing it, we don't often stop to think what it means. C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle, which is the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, he played with this idea. In that book, there was the last king of Narnia and he was in a great battle and he was forced through the door of a stable and that stable was going to get burned up. But when King Tyrion, as he's shoved into the stable, when he looks around, he finds he's not in a stable at night like he thought he would be. He was out in the open, in the day, he was standing on beautiful grass, he could see amazing fruit trees, he could see incredible mountains. And there, standing all on its own, was the stable door. And you could walk around it, and there'd be nothing special behind it, it was just a door standing on nothing. But when you looked through a gap in the wood, which was in the door, you could see the place of battle in the dark of night where the bonfire had uh, had burned out. It was as if the place that he was in, this world, was inside the stable. And King Tyrion, he was with, he found, the Narnian heroes from our world. And he said to them, it seems then that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is the God-man, bigger than our whole world, our whole universe. And there he was in the stable. And it's his death which reconciles us to God. The wonder of Christmas gives way to the ironic glory of Easter. The God who is bigger than our universe not only walks the dusty streets of Jerusalem, but carries his cross up a hill and is nailed there by the people he created. In our second heading, we see uh, that only Jesus can save. That's what Jesus said himself, isn't it? 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the central, the core element of the story we have to tell. It's what everything else before was leading up to. The first two elements, God making the world, God making us in his image, highlights just how horrific our rebellion against him is and showcases how right God was in his judgment of us. That we would be condemned to death is entirely right when you realize that the very air we breathe belongs to God and we use that breath to power our rebellion against him. All of this makes our message all the more incredible, all the more gripping and awe-inspiring that the God who has been wronged, rejected, who in holiness judged a rebellious humanity, this is the God who came, who humbled himself to become a man himself. More, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. See, we were the ones who deserved death. We deserved God's fury to be focused on us. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God became man, lived the perfect life, and died the death that he didn't deserve so that we could go free, so that we could be forgiven. There's a phrase I learned when I was at university, part of the Christian Union, which gets to the heart of what Jesus did at the cross. It's penal substitutionary atonement. It sounds complicated, but it simply means that Jesus took our penalty, that's penal, he took our penalty for us, substitutionary, to bring peace between us and God. Atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. And that idea that someone would willingly take the blame for someone else is now all through our books, all through our movies. Whether it's The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe or it's Gran Torino. Maybe you've even experienced it yourself. I know someone who paid a massive fine uh, from an accidental traffic infringement for a young couple. Whether it was actually large Objectively, I can't quite remember, it happened a while ago, but it was at least massive for the couple involved. There are countless shadows of this all through the Old Testament, but nothing can even compare to the original, to the best of these stories, the inspiration behind them all. There he was, standing before the crowd. Pilate had declared him to be innocent. But they wanted Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, released instead. The innocent one was condemned while the guilty was released. Fast forward through the beatings and the whips, the torture. 
the dreadful journey to the hill carrying his own cross, but being too weak physically to finish the journey on his own. And so Simon of Cyrene is, is chosen to carry the cross the rest of the way. And, and then there's Jesus, and he's nailed to the cross. And he's raised up, like he said he would be, raised up, stuck to the wood that he created himself. And the sky turns dark. It's the middle of the day during the time where there's a full moon. So this is no eclipse. You can't explain away this darkness through natural causes. So here's this darkness and it's God pouring out his fierce anger on his son. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Our guilt was imputed to him, meaning that he was treated as though he sinned. Before this, God was angry with us, with sinners. But now his anger has been turned away from us onto his son. The fancy word for that is propitiation. God's anger turned away from sinners, born Instead, by Jesus, who cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he hangs there, alone, friendless, mocked. He could call the angels to come and set him free, or he could simply step down from the cross without anyone's help, but he stays there. Because only Jesus can save, and he knows that. And, and only if he dies there on the cross in our place. And finally, after hours of pain and suffering, physical but, but especially spiritual pain, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last breath. And at that moment... The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And why was the curtain torn? Because finally, finally there is reconciliation between God and humanity. Remember back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were sent out of the garden, away from the most holy place of creation. And an angel was placed there at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword, guarding the way back. And then later on, as the tabernacle is built and then uh, the temple to replace it, they were made to remind us, remind the people of Eden, the place of God's presence. And in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was a curtain with pictures of angels. And it was a big keep-out sign. We couldn't come into the most holy place of the tabernacle, of of the temple, because of our sin. God is holy. And sinful people couldn't be with this holy God. The curtain prevented it. But finally, because Jesus died for us, suffering our judgment for us, finally we are allowed in. He acted like that sponge, soaking up the sin of his people. But if you believe in Jesus, your sin has already been punished by uh, by. In Jesus, the darkness of God's wrath has passed away from you onto Jesus. You've now been reconciled to God. And we could add to this a whole lot of, a whole lot more terms. 
as to what the cross has achieved for us. There is victory. There is redemption. There is adoption. We are justified, declared not guilty by the holy God who can't even stand a skerrick of sin. This is what the cross has done for us, what God has done for us as Jesus died for us. We have a message to share that Jesus' death reconciles us to God. The sin of those who trust in Jesus has been dealt with. It's no longer the barrier between us and God. The God-man died for us. And it had to be the God-man. It had to be, he had to be man because only a human could be punished for the sin of humanity. It had to be God because only uh, God could pay the price for all who would believe in him. Only his life was valuable enough, precious enough. Only he was worthy to die for the many. Sin has been taken care of. This is the hope that we can offer the guilty that we can offer the sufferer. We thought about suffering a little bit last week because it's part of the judgment of sin. But here is hope. Here in the cross, there is hope. The root cause of all of our suffering is defeated, is dealt with. The one who judged the world with suffering and death experienced it himself so that we could go free. He knows the pain of suffering personally. He can sympathize with us. But you see, he's not just a hand on our shoulder as we cry. He has solved the root cause of suffering. Yes, we still see them. We're still faced with suffering and death now. They haven't been removed from creation yet. But the cure has been administered. And one day it will have worked its way through the whole body. There will come a time when Christ returns and all will finally be made right. The day of our hope is coming. What a message we have to share. The immortal God came and took on flesh. He came to die for us, for for his people. He came to bear the penalty for all of our rebellion, all our pride, our hatred, our, our selfishness. See, this is unique among all the religions of the world. All the other religions recognize our problem, or at least a, a form of it. They know that we're not who we should be. And in response, they say, do, do, do. Do more, be better, try harder. Work your way up there. Get to where you want to be. But the gospel says it's done. Jesus has done all the work for us. Jesus' death reconciles us to God. Are you ready to share that message? There's no other message that offers this hope. All other messages leave us unsure if we're welcomed, if we have done enough. But Jesus' death reconciles us to God. This is the message we have to share. So let's come, let's rejoice, and let's pray. Our God in heaven, what can we say in response to this? How can we respond to such love? If you are for us, who can be against us? Our God, we are in awe that Jesus would come 
and die our death, die the death we deserved, so that we would know life, so that we would be forgiven, so we would be reconciled to you. Our God, work this truth into our hearts, into every crack and crevice. Lord, may there not be a part of our lives which is not touched by this glorious truth. And as our lives are touched, may we share it. May we share this glorious news, this gospel, with all those that we know. Our God, give us boldness. Give us love. Remind us that we have a message to share, that Jesus' death reconciles us to God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Jesse Walls from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church, and I pray you've been blessed as you've spent this time in God's Word. Next week, we'd love to have you join us in person for our service at 10am. I hope to see you there. And as always, if you'd like to make a comment on what you've heard today, you have a question, or you're looking for a church, then please get in contact with us. Our website is eaglehawkpc.org.au. You can also contact us through Facebook or Instagram. God bless you.